0: Welcome to the Daily Bite with your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. Today's text is the account of the crucifixion of Jesus in John chapter 19. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. And they came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, And according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all, unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold, your king! And they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king?' The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus, and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth And Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled, Not one of his bones will be broken, and again another scripture says, They will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight, I think there's a couple of nice ways you could start this chapter as you do the devotion together as a family. Take your children back into the Old Testament. This would be one of the ways. Read Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13, through chapter 53, verse 12. That section, uh, just about a chapter's worth, is a fantastic Old Testament prophecy about what the Messiah would suffer on our account. And then similar to that, Psalm 22 would be another good read. You can read them both if you'd like to, if the time permits for your devotion today. Because these two texts together show us, again, a prophecy about what Jesus would endure on the cross. And you'll see so many parallels, which is, gives you so many great talking points to walk your way through it. If you're doing outreach to a Jew, a Jewish people who... Still trust in the Old Testament scriptures. Those are two fantastic places to turn. Read those accounts together. Ask them if they've ever heard of anyone that sounded like that. Jews for Jesus and other Jewish groups have have certainly discussed the benefit of those chapters uh, for witness to Jews. The other possibility uh, is just a, a normal kind of tactic for stories that your family, your children would know well, let's let them retell the story. Have them teach you about the crucifixion. And once they're done, read the chapter together. So we've gone through the text already, but let's go ahead and and take a deeper look. Pilate, governor of the province of Judea under the Roman authority, he has Jesus flogged. So, so much for assuming Jesus to be innocent, to flog is to to strike with the lash, a whip basically that has various implements. It depends on the culture and time, but it it is believed that the whip that they used on Jesus would have been like what is called a cat of nine tails. It's got um, balls of metal on it to inflict bruising, it has sharp small metal objects to tear at the flesh. Uh, Jesus not easily struck. These are not, I'm not saying a whip isn't harmful, but this is more excruciating than that. This is a a deep torture. Not only this, then they take a crown of thorns. So you imagine a thorn plant uh, and they, they weave this together and they shove it down on top of his head, so the, the cuts on his forehead, the blood already beginning to flow from both his back and his face. They put a purple robe on him, purple the color of royalty because of its expensiveness. Uh, the dye to make such a fabric just had to be important, imported from other spots in the world. So the mockery here is they, they pretend he's king without recognizing that he actually is king. Their unbelief. They also strike him, so the soldiers do. Pilate brings Jesus out to display him before the crowd so that they can see he finds no guilt in him. That's a strange statement because, again, you don't flog an innocent man. Oftentimes, typically, people died from the flogging. Jesus has survived that much. Romans didn't flog and crucify. Uh, The body body couldn't take both, and yet Jesus is the God in the flesh, and he does endure both on our account. So he brings Jesus out still dressed like a king with the purple robe and the crown, and he presents him to the people who quickly then shout, Crucify him! Crucify him! After telling them to do it themselves, because he doesn't believe him to be guilty, The people reveal that he has said he is the Son of God. This terrifies Pilate. So Pilate, Roman, pagan, superstitious in whatever many ways he may be, this is a new level for him, imagining Jesus to be maybe a demigod or whatever it could be, the the possibilities running through Pilate's mind, we just don't know. But it's enough to scare him. And so he goes in, he questions Jesus, trying to figure out more about him, where he's from, and Jesus, silent. Pilate says, Don't you know I can I can release you or I can kill you? And Jesus responds, You'd have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above question is, is where this above is. If you take it in tandem with the next sentence, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin, uh, you might go to... Well, you can't really. I mean, the, the Jewish high priest has no authority over Pilate. So Annas or Caiaphas, that doesn't work to say that that's them. So the one giving Pilate the authority from above, then, is one of two places. It's either Rome, so that he's in the Roman chain of command, or God. I go with God here. Uh, God is the one who has given any earthly governor his authority. It comes from the Lord. So even if it is Rome, God gave Rome their authority. We learn this in Romans 13, verse 1. And then that means the second sentence, the last one there, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin, that one recognizes Pilate is still sinning but somebody else has created a great caused a greater evil here committed a greater evil here and that would be again you could go with the high priest annas or caiaphas he uh, might also talk about judas in that verse for having turned jesus in betraying him anyway a uh, family conversation point why did they crucify jesus another one why was jesus crucified and are they the same question they crucified jesus because they hated him they wanted him gone they saw him as a blasphemer opposed to their faith instead of the messiah that they had been waiting for all this time why was Jesus crucified? It gets at the idea of the forgiveness of our sins and the salvation that he alone can bring to us. So Pilate, seeking to release him at that point, but the Jews wouldn't let him. They appeal essentially to the authority of the Caesar himself, that Jesus has opposed Caesar by declaring himself a king. So if Pilate releases him, he's an enemy of Caesar because he's released an enemy of Caesar. That puts Pilate on a tough spot. So he brings Jesus out to the judgment seat to make his final decision, and that decision ends up, as we see at the end of the paragraph, being crucifixion. We do learn in verse 14 it is the day of preparation, so it is the Sabbath that we're talking about there. At sundown on Friday, the Sabbath day begins. The day leading up to it, 24 hours in advance, that window is the day of preparation. So Thursday night to Friday night is preparing for Friday night to Saturday night where you cook your meals, you prepare whatever food you need, you get your your house in order so that you don't work on the Sabbath itself. Now that it's about the sixth hour, we might take that normally as we'd hear it as noon, counting from six, adding six to it would give us noon, but the Romans start their counting for the day at midnight, uh, which would make this 6 a.m. The 6 a.m. picture works better here um, because the other Gospels, the crucifixion window, usually is described as being 9 until 3, with total darkness befalling the land from 12 to 3. So if this was already noon before Jesus is even crucified, uh, from John's perspective that would be troublesome. So I'm going with the, that he's using the Roman accounting here, starting at midnight, so the sixth hour makes it 6 a.m. We have no king but Caesar. It's one of the things that the chief priests say. This is First Samuel chapter 8. They have rejected God as their king and instead demand a king from men so that they can be just like all their neighbors. The Lord warned them not to do it, but they insisted they did it anyway. And they became just like all their neighbors, that is, pagans. They rejected God. And here we see much the same thing. Here their king is God in the flesh right there in front of them. And they're rejecting him to cling to a man in Rome. A man that they claim to despise and hate at least on other days when they don't despise and hate him as much as they despise and hate this other guy. So Jesus carries his cross to Golgotha, the place of the skull. We don't actually know why it's called the place of a skull, not for certain. It could be that it was a mound that was skull-ish in its appearance and just had earned that nickname. That or it earned that nickname because it's a place for execution and so skulls could be possibly left behind there at that point. So they crucify him with two thieves, one on either side. Pilate puts an inscription, which is common for a crucifixion, to have the identification for who it is and the crime that they committed. So Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. And the people upset, the chief priests upset that Pilate would write that he's the king of the Jews and insisting that instead it would be written, he said, He was king of the Jews. But Pilate said what I've written, I've written. This makes me wonder, did he believe it? We don't know. We don't know if we'll get to paradise and see Pilate there or not. The Coptic Christian church in in the land of Egypt, they believe Pontius Pilate was a saint, and they celebrate his saint day on June 25th. That's about all I can say. Um, Most of history and tradition don't seem to go that direction, but we just don't know. So it was written in Aramaic, and Latin, and in Greek. Aramaic, the common spoken language, uh, Greek and Latin very prominent in the Roman Empire. So they've crucified Jesus, they take his garments, divide them, except for the one that's all in one piece. Some argue it's not ripped apart because it has great value. Others argue functionally that if you rip it apart, it's no longer worth anything to anybody. You can't use it anymore. Whichever, uh, Psalm 22 is being fulfilled in this. Verse 18, which is in, quoted for us here, they divided my garments among them for my clothing, they cast lots. Essentially, casting lots in this essence, gambling, rolling a dice, couple of dice with you know different numbers, different results representing different people to see who gets the outcome. Standing by the cross... We have three Marys, the mother of Jesus, her sister, apparently somebody named two daughters, Mary, and then also Mary Magdalene. There could be as many as eight different Marys in the New Testament. It's really hard to say for sure as you look at all the different uses of it. Part of this is that the names Mariam and Maria, as we translate them from Greek into English, all of it's just translated as Mary. So, there's three of them at the cross. Also at the cross is John himself, the disciple Jesus loved standing there. So he's the only disciple that we're aware of who was present at the crucifixion. In that moment, Jesus then entrusts the care of his mother to John. And you can ask your children, why? What's this about? And see what they can say. The, the reasoning here is that Mary, now being widowed, that Joseph has passed away, we don't know how long ago, and now her firstborn son has also passed away, she does not have a caretaker. She does not have a a male relative, head of her house, that will help provide for her in her widowed state. And so to give her to John, John now treating her as his mother, John is going to care for her, provide for her this is one of the arguments commonly used about why mary has no other children that's not a, a strong argument however because i mean jesus himself has told us that that family is much more than just flesh and blood if you think of mark 3 and mark 6 they both have that kind of a family context where his flesh and blood family thought he was nuts and they wanted to stop him from his ministry But when they were searching for him he ended up telling the crowd that his mother and his brothers and sisters are the ones who do the will of his father in heaven so rather than let's say he has actual blood brothers and james and judas simon and and joseph then those four are not christians we know those four are not christians at least at this point they have rejected jesus as their savior so why would jesus entrust the care of his mother mary to one of them who do not believe he's going to entrust mary's care and her well-being to somebody that will point her to christ point her to her savior and that would then be john now it's true that these brothers do start coming to faith at least two of them do james ends up being the head of the jerusalem church jesus appeared to him specially after the resurrection and Judas, shortened to Jude, ends up writing the book of Jude. So two of our New Testament epistles come from these brothers of Jesus. John picks up a lot of fulfilling the scripture reference, not throughout his whole gospel necessarily, but especially here around Holy Week and the crucifixion. Fulfilling the scripture, I thirst, is probably Psalm 69, verse 21. They put a sour wine on a sponge on a hyssop branch and offer it to him, Uh, Hyssop is used in the Passover for sprinkling of blood. It's also used as a cleansing thing. So there's some cool symbolism as we look at the cross of Christ as Christ's blood sprinkled upon us for our cleansing in that. He then declares it is finished, that is, all of his work to save and redeem us Finished on the cross, we are atoned for, we're made at one with God again. Great parallel there to Revelation 16, verse 17, and 21, verse 6, both of which are obviously written by the Apostle John himself as well, where he says, It is done. Not quite the exact same Greek phrase, but the same format, the same function, uh, the same gist of an English translation. So I think there's a legitimate parallel there. Jesus here. Bows his head, gives up his spirit. This is the moment of his death. It was against Jewish law for a body to remain on the cross on the Sabbath, so they go to Pilate, asking that the bodies, uh, that the legs be broken, so these men would die, so they could take their bodies down off the cross before the Sabbath began. That late that afternoon, death on the cross was by asphyxiation. So as your body is nailed to the cross or tied to the cross, in other cases. The, the body leans forward and the weight is all on the chest and over time you are suffocated. What men would do as they're hanging there is they would use their feet to push up and that would take some of the pressure off the chest. They could take a deep breath and then they could let themselves down again into that position. Uh, yes, it prolongs the agony, but it's just what they did and so the procedure became break the legs. They can't do that anymore. They're going to suffocate fairly quickly, and this will be over, and we can take the bodies down. But when they come to Jesus, they don't need to break his legs, for he's already dead. They put a spear up into his side, and out come both blood and water. Uh, This is a sign of the fluid having built up around his heart, which is common with asphyxiation. And so, again, blood and water both come out. Many in church history, uh, both theologians and artists, have taken this as a reference to the sacraments. So not just the literal outpouring of, of blood and water, but also spiritually looking at this to be Christ's blood shed for us on the cross into a chalice that we drink in the Lord's Supper. Take, drink, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you for the forgiveness of sins, and also the water then flowing out into the font in which we are baptized, cleansed, and welcomed into his kingdom. So it's a great connection. If you can find artwork on that, that might be a good one to show to your children. Um, they're not easy to track down, but if you're using a search engine, something like Jesus, blood, water, cross, supper, baptism, those kinds of words might might get you an image search to result in that. John, he who saw it has borne witness his testimony is true. He knows he is telling the truth. All of that is to say it's John. He's probably the only witness to the crucifixion at this point still around. I mean, it's been about 60 years. Could there still be another maybe, but he might be the only one left and he's speaking in the present tense. So it's it's clearly himself uh, that is speaking and he gives us two different Old Testament citations, Exodus 12 verse 46, really Jesus is our Passover lamb and then Zechariah chapter 12 verse 10. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus approach Pilate. Joseph does. Nicodemus helps to bury Jesus at this point. Joseph is a member of the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin, which means he's either a Pharisee or a Sadducee. We don't know for certain. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. So they could be two Pharisees that we know then who come to faith in Jesus Christ. Or it could be that these two opposite opposing enemy Jewish religious factions of a Pharisee and a Sadducee are being united in the death of Christ because we are one body. Jew, Gentile, male, female, slave, free. We're all one in Christ, Galatians 3.28. So they have 75 pounds of myrrh and aloe to bury him with. Um, They don't get to do the normal Jewish burial As time is short so they find a nearby tomb uh, in the garden where he was crucified which we learn elsewhere is the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea himself and they bury him there John's gonna skip over Holy Saturday and so we'll come back tomorrow to learn of the resurrection